Thanks very much, Tyler. And uh, thank you very much to Trinity Church for having us out. Uh, this is a, we're, we're just having a blast. We just actually, listen, we're, on our, we're on our great fall 2019 tour for Cross Politic. Uh, last week we were in Phoenix, and now we're in Seattle, and then we'll be done. It's been pretty awesome, pretty awesome. So uh, thank you for coming out. Uh, you are uh, some pretty uh, amazing uh, people, uh, but no, thank you very much for the opportunity and the uh, privilege it is to come and, uh, and hopefully encourage you, uh, send you back out to your families and to your jobs and to your churches uh, reminded of, of the promises of the gospel, um, energized, equipped maybe a little bit more with God's word uh, to go uh, and proclaim Jesus in the public square. Um, so this first talk is entitled, The Government Will Be on His Shoulders. I was given the title by Gabe, and that was it. So here we go. <laughs> and uh, tomorrow's talk is, uh, is entitled, Our Marching Orders. She also gave me that title too, and so we'll see what, what comes of that. And then I'm preaching on Sunday at Trinity Church and uh, looking forward to pushing some of these themes into the corners, particularly applying it to family. When we interviewed Ben Shapiro a few years ago for Cross Politic, we asked him uh, towards the end of the interview why he didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, ben Shapiro's uh, conservative podcast is, I believe, the biggest conservative podcast in the world, I think, um, and he's a Jew. And, um, and so towards the end of the conversation, I asked him, I said, so, so Ben, why don't you accept Jesus as the Messiah? And Ben said it was because the Messiah is understood, actually, he said it a lot faster than this, <laughs> but I'm going to say it at my cadence. <laughs> Um, he said it was because the Messiah is a political figure. He's a political figure. He is uh, understood in, in, in the Jewish understanding of things uh, as, a, as a political figure, a political deliverer, uh, a king who would reestablish, he was he's to reestablish the Davidic kingdom and establish the, um, uh, the, the nation of Israel and reign forever. That was his answer. And he said, and Jesus didn't do that, so he's not the Messiah. I think for far too many Christians, they would actually agree with Shapiro. Even though they believe in Jesus, even though they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they would agree with Shapiro. Yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, he, he didn't actually come as a political figure. He didn't actually come and, and, and um, reestablish the Davidic kingdom. I mean, he kind of sort of did, but it's in your heart or in heaven. And it's sort of a spiritual thing, and, and you're right. Fair, fair enough, Ben. Of course, it's better to believe in Jesus and misunderstand what he accomplished than to reject Jesus on false pro premises, as Ben Shapiro has done. But all things being equal, it's better to do both. It's better to accept him and accept him on true premises. So what I want to do in this talk is I want to walk through primarily the Old Testament and demonstrate uh, in, in a broad way um, how Ben Shapiro 
is wrong. Well, actually, he's half right. He's half right, and he's wrong, though, in his estimation that Jesus didn't actually come and accomplish what the Old Testament scriptures promised that the Messiah would accomplish. So remember, we begin back in the Garden of Eden at the fall, when sin first entered the world, God promised to reverse the curse of sin. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15. And then when we follow this initial promise of the seed, this seed language, through the book of Genesis, we see that this is a promise, though, that almost right off the bat has obvious socio-political ramifications. Ben Shapiro's right about that part. God says this to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. Genesis 17, six and seven. So right off the bat, Genesis 17, you have the, the reiteration of the promise of this seed to Abraham and it's clearly political in nature. Kings will come from you. Nations will come for you, from you. Nations and kings are unmistakably social and political in nature. You can't have many nations and kings in such a way that it's not impacting the world. It's not impacting society, the public square. Just a couple of chapters later, right at the end of the, that famous scene where Abraham has been asked by God to offer his son Isaac on, uh, as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, uh, following Abraham's obedience, God says, blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice, Genesis 22, 17 and 18. Again, the language of uh, the, the descendants possessing the gates of their enemies, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's clearly, again, a promising socio-political impact. Possessing the gates of the enemies, blessing all the nations. This unmistakable political vision is reiterated a number of times throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There's, there's piles of them. Here's just a handful. Uh, Balaam's, remember Balaam's failed curse. He's hired by the king who's trying to get him to curse Israel. And, and, he, and four times it comes out, instead of a curse, it comes out as blessing. And one of them, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. Numbers twenty four seventeen. So clearly, the starry descendants of Abraham are kings and rulers, but there's one in particular of note, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, batter the brow of Moab, destroy all the sons of tumult. Again, just hear the political promises. Then God reiterates this promise to David. 
2 Samuel 7, David is said, I, I will build a house for God. I will build a house for you. And, and, the, and, the, and the prophet comes back and says, actually, uh, no. He, God is going to build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, just as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. Remember, God's talking to David. He's talking to a political ruler, a king over a nation, the political implications of this promise couldn't be more clear, couldn't be more obvious. God is promising to make one of David's descendants king over Israel forever. But here is where I think if we're not careful, uh, we, we, we can easily begin importing our own ideas or assumptions into the text. Remember, the original setup was with Adam serving and guarding the garden with the clear command and indication that this was to be a training ground for learning how to rule the world. So remember, God created the world. We have the, the summary uh, story of it in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, um, we're told that not everything in the world has, has grown up yet. It's not all been watered yet. So there's, it's, it's, it's there, it's created, but it's not all in its maturity yet. But then God plants a garden in the east part of Eden. And, and that garden, God sort of you know, puts it on the, the, the speed dial and it, it, goes, it grows up fast. Because there's already trees there with fruit. And there's a river running out of it. And so God puts Adam in the garden and he gives him the task of, it gives him the task of serving it and guarding it. Working it, intending it, serving and guarding it. And, and the implication is, here, here's a little patch of planet Earth that's very well cultivated. See how these trees grow? They grow up and they get big. And they've got fruit, and there's different kinds of fruit. And there's different kinds of vegetables, and there's all these different plants and flowers and things, and it's been cultivated carefully. And there's a river running out, and it divides into four, and, and the clear implication is, well, he, God already told him, Adam's job is enormous. Adam's job is to take dominion of, of the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, everything that walks on the ground, the whole world, which is a really big job. And God says, start here. Start serving and guarding this little plot here. Start cult See how this garden works. And then as you, as you follow the river out, the river is kind of like an arrow for Adam. See, the arrow, there's arrows going out, go that way. It divides into four. There's gold down one of those rivers. You know, does Adam even know what gold is at this point? You know, God said, write that down, go find it. And, and so, but there's an, it's like arrows going out of the garden. But he gets out of the garden, and what he's going to find, though, is an uncultivated world. It's a good world, it's a perfect world, but it's uncultivated. It's not been gardened. Part of the problem is there hasn't been watered, hasn't been watered yet. So there might be little saplings poking up, little plants started, but it's not, 
cultivated yet. It's not been cared for by a gardener yet. And so remember, the whole point then of God putting Adam in the garden to begin with is this is the place where he's gonna see at maturity a blueprint for what can happen to the rest of the world. See what you can do with trees? See, look, look at these trees. See, now, now go out and do there. Do you see these plants? See how I've organized them? I mean, we don't even know how God organized them. We know that there was two trees in the, in the center of the garden. But how did God, you know, were there, you know, here were the fruit trees and, you know, here were the, you know, the, the uh, I don't know, the, the maples and the palm trees. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, we don't know. How did he organize it? But it was cultivated. It was beautiful. And it was mature. And so it, it, it serves as a kind of blueprint, a training ground. Get, get, get used to this. Now take it out there into the world. So when Adam sinned, when Adam sinned, the way back into the garden was fiercely guarded by cherubim with flaming swords, signifying that the only way back into the presence of God was going to be by being killed, by being burned and cut up. That's the only way back into the presence of God. And so this sets up the central problem of the Bible. How can sinful men and women get back into the presence of God? But that's, it's not just that. That's, that's, that's a big part of it. Yes, we want to get back into the presence of God. We want to be back in fellowship with God. But the, but the point is, the problem is, is that we need to get back into the presence of God so that we can learn how to w- rule the world rightly again. The garden was the blueprint. Being able to have access to God and be in God's presence and see what God had done with the garden was key to knowing how to live out in the world. And now you're locked out of the blueprint room. Now you're locked out of the place where you need to get so you know what to do out here. And then on top of that, of course, everything's cursed. And so you've got weeds growing and thorns and thistles and pain and childbearing and death. So it's all working against you now and you don't even know how it's supposed to work. And there's big flaming swords blocking access to go back into the presence of God. So the, pro- the problem of the Bible is not simply how do sinners get right with God. That's, that is a big part of it. The problem is, how do sinners get right with God so that they can once again take up the task of taking dominion of the world? How can we get right with God so that we can begin ruling the world again rightly? So that we can stop making it up as we go along? How can we get right with God so that we can work in the world again, rule the world rightly, so that we can make the world fruitful again? So the promised seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent in order to restore this access to God, in order to give the human race the ability to rule well again. That's that's the setup. So when God promises a king from David's line who will be a son to God, whose throne will be established forever, he's promising the fulfillment of this promised Adam, which is direct access to God in order to reign over the world. So the plan from the beginning was that man would have free access to God in order to rule the world. Let me add one more thread to this and try to 
try to pull it together for you. There's another important thread running parallel in the Old Testament, in addition to these promises for Messiah, the seed who will come, bless all nations, and possess the, the gates of the enemies, the one, who will be the, the one who will sit on the throne of David. Parallel to that is another theme, and, and we see it a number of times, particularly in the Psalms. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22, verse 28. The kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Or this one, Psalm 45, 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Or this one, from Psalm 103. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Another psalm. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power and make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. Psalm 145. So, so, so follow this. You have, in the beginning, you've got God and man united in fellowship with the job given to Adam and Eve and to their descendants, rule the world. Take dominion of everything, rule it all, make it fruitful, make it beautiful, like I've done with this little patch in Eden. And then they sin, they rebel. Fellowship is broken with God. They're kicked out of the garden. The, the cherubim are erected. They can't go back. They got thorns, they thistles, they got death. And yet God then promises this seed, the seed of the woman who will crush the seed of the serpent, the seed of Abraham that will possess the gates of the enemies, the seed from whom will come kings and nations and blessings to all the nations, and the seed will sit on the throne of David forever. So you've got that promise of, a, of, a, of rule restored. And then parallel to that, though, you've got these psalms, and it shows up in a number of other places, where God is just ruling all the way through. He's king all the way through. Nothing's been interrupted in terms of his lordship. In terms of his kingdom, nothing, nothing happened. He's king forever. His dominion is forever. His throne is forever. And where does he rule from? Psalm 103 again. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. He rules over all the nations. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures through all generations. So you've got this promised Messiah, the seed, and you've got God's kingdom ruling uninterrupted. His dominion ruling uninterrupted. One more psalm. Try to pull this together. Psalm 110. David sings, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord is at your right hand, and he shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. Wait, what? The Lord said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He will execute kings, he will judge among the nations, he will execute the heads of many countries. The picture that emerges here is that the promise 
that was given to Adam and Eve, the promise that was given to Abraham and to David, was a promise welcoming a man back into the presence of God. Welcoming a man back into the garden. Welcoming a man to come and sit at God's right hand in order to rule the nations. So you've got the parallel tracks. You've got God's throne, God's rule, God's dominion, and you've got the promise of the seed, the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the king, the promise of the one who will come and bring the kingdom. But Psalm 110, in many ways, is what makes those two parallel tracks intersect. Because what we find out in Psalm 110 is that, that, that David has a Lord who the Lord God is going to invite to sit at his right hand. Who's going to sit at his right hand and he will execute kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill the places with dead bodies. He will execute the heads of many countries. The, kingdoms, the kingdom is the Lord's. His throne is forever. And the only way a man will become king who will rule forever is if a man goes back into God's presence to reign with God forever. That's, that's how God's kingdom goes forever. It's his throne, it's his kingdom, it's his dominion. And so the only way a man could reign forever is if he was given that throne. If he was given that right hand to sit at. That's the only way you could have that kind of kingdom. In other words, the plan from the beginning was for the messianic king to reign in heaven at God's right hand. That was the plan from jump. The plan from the beginning was for a man to sit at God's right hand and rule. Now, of course, the mere man, Adam, failed. And every mere man would fail. And so we know this messianic king can't be a mere man. He must be the God-man. And so he is David's Lord, truly. Not merely a descendant of, of David by the flesh, but God in the flesh. But the plan was always for a man to reign in heaven at God's right hand. His socioeconomic political agenda was always going to be run from the heavenly headquarters. It was always going to be run from the right hand of the Father. That was the plan. And Daniel makes this explicit. This is Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the ancient of days. You know, Jesus quotes this in the Gospels, and people frequently get, they goof this up. They hear coming on the clouds of heaven, and what do modern evangelicals always think? The second coming, he's coming. But he's quoting Daniel, and Daniel says he's coming where? He's coming to the ancient of days. He's actually not coming to earth, he's coming to heaven. 
I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and then to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So the Old Testament agrees with Ben Shapiro that the Messiah is a political figure. He absolutely is a political ruler who will scatter the enemies of God and will reign forever. But the Old Testament also makes it clear that the plan was always for the seed to return to the garden, to pass through death, and yet live and return to the presence of God where he would reign and rule as Adam was supposed to. Man's dominion was always supposed to be an outflow of God's dominion. Man's rule was always about knowing God and then taking God's rule and applying it to the world. Man's rule was always meant to be an extension of God's rule, and therefore the plan was always for a man to reign at God's right hand. I don't know about you all, but I think a lot of us instinctively, when you get to the part of the ascension of Jesus into heaven, it's sort of the part where it's sort of the bum part, like the bummer part. Like we were just getting going, Jesus. Like you're alive again, and this was our chance. Like, this is it right here. And Jesus says, now it's, it's better for me to go. And we're like, yeah, I know, but can't you give us the spirit without going? I mean, there's gotta be a way, right? And, and Jesus says, no, it's better if I go. I need to go. And we think, but it's, how are you, how are you gonna do that? And we tend to, again, sort of, I think, if not explicitly, maybe implicitly and sort of subtly give ground to the Ben Shapiro's of the world. Yeah, I mean, it could have been really impactful politically and socially and economically and so on, but, but he had to go to heaven. I mean, he's going to work it all out somehow, but, you know, and, you know, spirit was given and that's comforting and, you know, we're, we're going to, you know. But if we're reading our Old Testaments faithfully, the ascension of Jesus is actually, I would argue, the most political moment in the gospel story. It's not the moment where Jesus was like, well, nah, I'd rather just watch you suffer. Nah, I just, you know, I'll, just, I'll be up here hanging out. You know, call me if you need anything. No. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the Father's right hand. That's where he was coronated. That's where his kingdom was given to him. That's the dominion that he was going for the whole time. The ascension of Jesus is a thoroughly political doctrine, and we can't miss how, how closely it relates to everything that comes before it. 
Jesus lived the perfect life, the life that we can't live, the the life that we've ruined over and over again. He was condemned in our place and the wrath of God for our sin was exhausted in him and on him in the cross. And then when there was no punishment left, when there was no debt left to pay, he rose from the dead because death could not hold him anymore. And where did he first appear? In the garden, of course. Mistaken for the gardener. Making all things new. And what did he say to Mary? Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. I'm not quite done yet, Mary. I'm almost there. I've come out of death, but I've got to finish this now. I've got to get back to the garden. I need to get back into the presence of the Father so I can pick up the reins of this rule, so I can do the thing that Adam was supposed to do, that the seed was always promised to do, so that I can get busy possessing the gates of our enemies, putting enemies beneath my feet. Our hope for this world is not merely that he died, not merely that he rose, as glorious as those things are and as, ne- as necessary as they are. But just as importantly, our hope for this world is in the fact that he ascended into heaven and he sits at God's right hand. Our new Adam, our seed of Abraham, our son of David has passed through the flaming cherubim and is back in the garden serving and guarding in order to bring the reign of God to bear to the ends of the earth. It's absolutely political. And it was always the plan that this political kingdom would be extended from the presence of God. When Peter preached his Pentecost sermon, he quoted Psalm 16, which said that David's Lord would be at God's right hand, actually quotes Psalm 110 first, and then 16. And then, and Peter summarizes where he's talking about David's descendant or David, this, this, this one body not seeing corruption and says, guys, um, we know it's not talking about David because David's body's here and it's, you know, we can go check, it got corrupt. So he's talking about somebody else whose body didn't see corruption and he's talking about Jesus who rose from the dead and then Peter summarizes and says, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, to sit on his throne. Peter, in the first Christian sermon, says this is the deal. He had to go sit on the throne. That's where he goes and puts all his enemies beneath his feet. That's where he goes so that we can possess the gates of our enemies. You can't celebrate Christmas and not believe this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. See how I worked that in there, Gabe? Worked that right in there, see, it's right there. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will 
perform this. So if you're doing it right, the presents, the tree, the decorations, the lights, the cookies, the feasting should all be pointing to this promise. Jesus is on the throne of David, establishing justice in this world, in every nation, this very minute. I mean, it says Jesus is king in Times Square right now. Thanks to Kanye. He's, that's what he's doing now. Our problem is that we basically agree with the first century Jews who thought that politics is only and necessarily driven by force. We look at the numbers, we look at the the hard hearts, we look at the votes, we look at corrupt politicians, we look at these court justices, we look at the bad laws and how many of them there are. We look at these, these godless governors and rulers and city councils and our math adds up to the same faithless conclusion as Ben Shapiro and the Jews. But Jesus didn't fail and he isn't losing. One of the most obvious demonstrations of that fact should just be the fact of ask yourself every now and again, just look in the mirror and say, how do I know about some Jewish guy who died 2,000 years ago? And I live in you know, the Puget Sound, Washington State, on the other side of the planet. How am I a Christian? How did we get here? from 11 bumbling dudes in Palestine. I mean, they didn't even really seem like very good fishermen. <laughs> and, like, and we're here now, 2,000 years later, alongside billions of other Christians on this planet. We're like, but Hillary might have been elected. Jesus hasn't failed. He's not losing. He's winning. How do we get here from 11 guys in Palestine? How do we get here? How is Jesus conquering the world? Because that's what he's doing. There's a a really awesome little um, YouTube video actually you can find online where it's just talking, it's just a visual spread of the gospel thing. It's a video, but it's color, it's color-coded, and it's showing you where the, where the Christians are, and you know, there's a little dot in Palestine, and then it's like, just starts slowly spreading, and there's a timeline going, right? So it's like, you know, AD, you know, 30, and then it's just running, and you've got a little timeline running along the bottom of the, of the page, and, there's, and, the, and the color's just slowly spreading around the Mediterranean, and then it's jumping up into Europe, and then it's jumping over to the UK, and then it's jumping over to America and Asia, and it's just going all the way to 2019. Why are they Why are they so hard? Why are they so harsh? Why are they so adamant? Because we have them on the run. Because we have them surrounded. I'm not saying it's 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 it's, it's a, you know, ideal kingdom paradise in Seattle. I'm not saying that. 
but it's going to be. It belongs to Jesus. How does Jesus reign? How does he rule from heaven? How is his politics being carried out? Well, sometimes he just kills people. He can do that. He's Jesus. He's God. Right? He, he can do that. Sometimes through wars. Sometimes through, he moves the hearts of kings. He does big things. But mostly how we got here was through the faithfulness of men and women just obeying Jesus every day. Faithful preachers, faithful fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers, children, scientists, explorers, inventors, educators, musicians, writers, artists, and a few politicians. How do we get here? We gather with God's people every Lord's Day and we proclaim him king. We proclaim his reign until he comes. We break bread together. We sing psalms at the top of our lungs. We marry. We keep our, our wedding vows. We raise our kids. We confess our sins. We forgive quickly. We love our neighbors. We lay our lives down gladly for Jesus. That's how we got here. That's how we got here. People worshiping Jesus, loving Jesus, confessing their sins, repenting of their sins, walking faithfully day by day, loving their neighbor, loving their wife, loving their husband, loving their kids, and losing their lives gladly for Jesus. The government is on his shoulder. Listen to Psalm 2. What happens? What happens when the nations rage and the people's plot it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. He says, you're really cute down there with your city councils. Ooh, you're so cute. Look at you, black robes. Ooh, fancy. You're gonna be dead in a few years. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's Jesus. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And do you think, did Jesus ask? He absolutely did. He asked for this nation. He asked for all of them and he was given all of them. He paid for them all with his blood. We're not trying to get the nations to accept Jesus. We're just telling them that they already have a king and his name is Jesus. And they might as well come along nicely. I've mentioned this in a few different contexts, but it's one of my favorite things in the story of Exodus. I mentioned this at the end of my, my book, Blood Bought World, but it, I was reminded of, we just sang Mighty Fortress, that phrase, Lord Sabaoth. I, I used to think when I was younger for a long time that that was just a weird way of saying Sabbath, Lord Sabbath, I don't know. You guys are probably a lot smarter than I am, so. I, uh, but it turns out that's actually just a transliteration of a Hebrew word. Sabaoth means hosts or armies. 
Um, and, uh, but a few years ago when I was preaching through the book of Exodus, I noticed this word was used, it's used five times, armies, 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 used five times in the book of Exodus, in the story of the Exodus. But the most striking thing in the world to me is the fact that it never once applies to the Egyptians. It always applies to the Israelites. God calls them his armies. And you're like, God, your armies, <laughs> really? Like they're just like fussing and complaining. And like, I mean, they're the worst armies in the world. Like Moses is like, here, I'm here to deliver you. And they're like, no, we don't want to. Like, Can you stop doing that deliverance thing, Moses? And Moses is like dragging them out of Egypt. And at the end, you know, it's like, all right, you're gonna have to kill a lamb, put the blood over the door and eat the unleavened bread and shut up, okay? Just do it, okay? And they're like, all right, fine, we'll do it. And, and then God's like, completely trouncing the Egyptians, completely leveling the greatest empire in the world all around them, and then dragging them out. They get out to the sea, and of course, you bring us out here to kill us? Shut up. It's in the Hebrew. It says, says, shut up. And and watch what the Lord's going to do. He parts the sea, brings them through, destroys all the, the chariots, and all through there, Pharaoh has chariots, he has horses, he has power and might. He never has armies. And meanwhile, the writer, God, inspiring, saying, these are my armies. And what is he, you know, he says, now you're going to ask your neighbors and, and plunder them. You know, worst armies in the world. And they go and they, they get out, they're like, look what we got, gold and stuff. <laughs> look, look what we did. What did they do? Well, in addition to all their sinning and all their bad attitudes, what did they do? They put blood over their doors. They ate unleavened bread. And then they walked out. And if God calls them his armies, how much more so are we his armies? What do we do? We gather together, we display the bread and the wine, we say we're under the blood. We belong to Jesus. Look, we're baptized. Here we are, messes that we are, but we're following Jesus. And by the grace of God, we are his armies. And with us, he's bringing his blessing to every nation so that we might possess the gates of our enemies.